You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 123. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, pleasure to be back and hosting this week on a something we haven't done in almost a month, I think, which is a guest interview. I love doing these guest interviews, and I'm finally uh, getting those guests one after the other. Uh, and so we got a lot of fascinating subjects to bring to you over the next couple of weeks. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about a book that I read uh, pre-pandemic. It's a book called Everybody Lies is the head title. And I saw this and I was like, oh, that's a very eye-catching name for a book. And then I looked looked at it and it turned out that uh, you know it's about data science and big data and getting information from from Google searches and I thought oh this is this is me this is personal for me because this is actually lies in some of the work that I do at Foursquare and you know one of the things that so many people used to ask me when I gave talks about the the Foursquare data uh, over and over people would ask you know what are some of the interesting things you found in the data and so I you know I had some canned answer for them well this book is all about interesting things that you could find in data whether it's uh, a lot of whether it's Google search data and um, and as you'll see a few few other pieces uh, you know few few other data insights as well um, so it's sort of at the uh, intersection of big data economics human behavior so we've got some fascinating insights today and there are a bunch of lessons in this conversation for those of you in data science or in the business of understanding the world in general so keep listening. Uh, today's sponsors, uh, we have two sponsors today. The first is, is this episode is sponsored by Ryon, R-I-O-N, Raw Internet Object Notation. You might think that you're not in the market for data formats, but I'm sure most of you use JSON or XML or something. You are in the market for data formats, and Ryon by NanoSci is a new data format, has a lot of great properties, and later in the show, we'll talk about why you might want to go to their website and check it out if you're interested in that. We're also sponsored today by Brilliant. Brilliant is a set of fun, interactive courses to help you beef up your skills in math and science. I'm telling you, it's like playing a video game, but instead, you'll just keep getting smarter and smarter. Also, check out uh, Brilliant. It's just an app and a website linked at localmaxradio.com slash 123, 123 today. My next guest has used Google searches to measure racism, self-induced abortion, depression, child abuse, hateful mobs, the science of humor, sexual preference, anxiety, uh, and sexual insecurity, among other topics. And this is what he has on, on his website. But listen, today, I also picked some of the positive stuff to talk about today, because I'm not going to apologize that. You know, last week's episode, if you listened to last week, it was kind of a downer. So we're going to have at least some fun today. He is a former Google data scientist and the author of Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. I like the tagline, you've reached the local maximum. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, you know, some people get it, some people don't. Uh, I, I imagine you're one of the people who, get, who gets it. Uh, all right, so your book is about gleaming insights from Google search data and other sources. But before we talk about what those are, uh, I know you were working at Google, you were a data scientist. Uh, when did you actually decide, hey, 
this is a data set I really want to dive deeply into. How, how did you get the space to do it from the company? Did, did Google? Well, that actually happened before I joined the company. So I oh, was interesting. Doing, okay. Yes, I was doing my PhD in economics and uh, I became obsessed with Google Trends, which is a public tool. Anybody can use it. Right. Uh, I was kind of, I was burnt out during my PhD program. I had decided to study economics despite having no real interest in economics uh, you know, I wasn't a kid who grew up reading the Wall Street Journal or watching CNBC or, you know, studying the difference between debt and equity or anything, any, anything like that. So uh, I was kind of. So how'd you fall into that then? Well, what happened is I read the book Freakonomics. I was right. a philosophy. I was a philosophy major in college. And, you know, so that's not doesn't really leave you, leave you with any options. Most philosophy majors just become lawyers. And I really didn't want to do that. And. Uh, I read the book Freakonomics and I'm just like, oh, that's what I want to do. That's like Freakonomics was written by Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt. And it was about all these quirky things you can find about human beings from data. So he found evidence that sumo wrestlers cheat and that teachers uh, help their students do better on exams. They cheat as well. And, uh, you know, studied whether that's found that swimming pools are more dangerous than guns uh, in terms of killing kids and just like all these quirky uh, findings about human nature that a, the legalization of abortion lowered crime 20 years later. So I'm just like, that is my thing. That's what I'm interested in. Just people and the weirdness of people and data analysis and numbers and stats. Uh, but I, that, what I failed to realize is that uh, free economics was made such an explode was such so explosive because that's not really economics. Most economists do not study these topics. So once you get into actual economics school, uh, there's not so much discussion of sumo wrestlers and swimming pools and cheating teachers. There's a lot more discussion of inflation rates and interest rates and uh, topics that I didn't have so much interest in. So then when I discovered Google data, that's when I'm like, that's what I'm interested in the weirdnesses of people. And I knew they'd reveal it in Google. So I just latched onto that right away. Well, the thing I like about that story is how it ends. Instead of getting swallowed by the, uh, the Borg of, uh, you know, the, the realities of the economics profession, you actually ended up finding, uh, the, 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 the topics that interest you anyway. Yeah. But then I got, then I got rejected by every academic job. So that's the next next, next stage of life. Uh, yeah. The, the, the next stage in the story, I guess, uh, is that they hired the people at the academic market, hired the people who didn't go down this uh, following their passion uh, rabbit hole. So but I but it but it worked yeah. out in, you know, in a weird way, I guess. But, yeah, there, there are a lot of ups and downs, I guess. No, life. I mean, it's it's that's it's something that I'm trying to do. I would one thing with this podcast. It's like, hey, what's a way that I could like talk about stuff that I'm passionate about, even if I don't know quite how to make a profession out of it quite yet? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think there's a balancing act. Even, you know, once I started doing the data analysis, then when I went to Google, they hired Google kind of liked what I was doing and they hired me and I was allowed to kind of keep doing the stuff I liked. I was really interested in, you know, these quirky studies of human nature and human sexuality and prejudiced parents and, you know, a lot of the stuff that's, that's in Everybody Lies, my first book. But at the same time, I was working at Google and trying to do studies of advertising, which I didn't find as interesting, but you kind of... Oh, I've done so many of those. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, you know... It's like, they're like, that's what keeps the lights on around here. Yeah. I mean, at least what, for me, you know, when you're 20, you just... 
25 and you grow up like I did and I don't, I don't know your background, but I mean, I had a very, very sheltered existence, kind of an upper middle class suburban background and you kind of just assume you can do whatever you want in life uh, and get pissed when anybody tells you, you to do anything else. So that's hence my studying philosophy instead of like a practical uh, subject and, uh, you know, following all my passions on every dimension. And as you get older, you kind of, I think, are more willing, at least I am, to make compromises and kind of find that balancing act where you find places where you can explore things that you're really passionate about and really, you know, would do for free and then also do things that, yeah, put on the light, keep the lights on. Yeah, no, I, I totally identify with that uh, that struggle. Uh, so this is, you said this is your first book, Everybody Lies. Yeah. Uh, so you, you actually have another one? Yeah, it, it was months. due uh, two months ago. So. Oh, sweet. Okay, so we we haven't heard about it yet. <laughs> no, uh, it was due two months ago, but it's in. I'm in the process of. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll look out for it later. So let's actually let's dive into some of the some of the interesting stuff here, because uh, so it's actually been four months since I read the book. So and I'm kind of surprised. I probably would have had a different discussion with you four months ago than I would now, because I'm sort of just like certain things stick out four months that I wouldn't. Um, have expected. Uh, so, so the other day I was like, I was talking to my dad and I mentioned the, the study about the NBA. Uh, oh, yeah. And I think it was, you know, most people, and I mentioned the stat and then he called me later. He's like, Hey, where'd you get that, that, that stat? And I said, Oh, uh, I think it's from this book. I'm pretty sure it's from this book. I, I grabbed your book off the shelf. I'm like, yeah, yeah, here it is. Uh, so most people would guess that it's, you're more, tell me if I'm wrong here, you're more likely to be from a lower income zip code to make it to the N NBA. You found out that this isn't true? Yeah, so I think there's, there was kind of a popular notion for a while that NBA players kind of come from tough, rougher backgrounds. Uh, and, you know, there are definitely many examples. So LeBron James, probably sure. you know, the most famous player of the past, past decade, uh, came from a single mother, poor in Akron, Ohio. Uh, and I think there's an idea that that's kind of the common, uh, the most common, the, the, the most common background of NBA players. I actually did a survey and asked people, uh, what do you think? Are there more NBA players from poorer backgrounds or middle-class backgrounds? And, and the majority said poor backgrounds. And I think people start building this narrative that, uh, that kind of being from a tough background gives you more motivation. So kind of like these suburban kids or these middle-class kids or these kids from two parent homes, uh, they have other options, but the kids from the real tough backgrounds, they're going to do whatever it takes to get out of their situation to make it big. And so when you look at the data, I looked at a whole bunch of different ways. I think it's very, very clear that uh, actually, you know, that there are more, uh, the, the, basically the better your background is, the higher your chance of making the NBA. Uh, for, and that's true for black kids or white kids. And uh, I think one of the things that that, that study shows is that we have to be really careful. I think the media can gives 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 us a frequently a very distorted view of the world because the media likes to show us what makes for a good story. Right. So they love to show us rags to riches stories. So they they, they you know they want to show and look at this look where this NBA player came from. Look at the this tiny shack he grew up in, uh, and because of that, we kind of exaggerate uh, the prevalence of these better stories, such as rags to riches. Uh, compared to uh, the less good stories, the middle class to riches stories. So Michael Jordan is an example of a middle class to riches stories where he came from two parent home. Both his parents were had good jobs, uh, middle class, 
And if you actually look at it, his, you can see the ways that background really assisted him. Actually, it, I saw it again in the, uh, uh, the last dance. I don't know if you saw the documentary. Uh, no. Yeah. But it was about the, the bulls and it was a kind of documentary that fo- fe- featured heavily Jordan and they show his mother, I think moved to him to Chicago originally, uh, to help him kind of guide him. Cause she knew that there would be a lot of temptations for a young NBA player. Uh, drugs, women, uh, parties, and she moved out uh, with him there to kind of help help steer him away from those dangerous paths. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, you you actually pulled together that that wasn't from Google search data. You actually pulled together a lot of different data sets for that, if I remember correctly. Yeah. There there wasn't a, a, a at least the time I did studies might be available now, but there wasn't a way to just get here's the actual background of every NBA player. So right. Uh, one thing I used is the county they were born in and the income of the county they were in. One of the, the more clever things, I think, was you a- I actually looked at the first names of NBA players because it turns out uh, for African-Americans, you can tell a lot about someone's background based on their first name, particularly in the time period I was studying, which is uh, boys born in the 1970s and 1980s. And okay, uh, so uh, African-Americans from poorer backgrounds were more likely to have unique names which is names that weren't given to any other kid in that country in that year. So LeBron actually would be a unique name. LeBron, when it was given, was not a, a, a name that other people were given. It was kind of a made-up name uh, and suggests that he had a poor background, which he did. And Michael would be a different, you know, the opposite spectrum. Michael's a very, very common name and suggests uh, correctly that he came from a more, a, a, a more middle-class background. And if you look in the NBA, uh, there are much fewer NBA players with unique names than the black po- black NBA players with unique names than the black population in general. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I also wanted to mention the horse racing story. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> because so uh, let me tre- see if I, my memory is correct from from reading that. But my my takeaway was uh, people would buy horses based on the pedigree, who the horse's parents and grandparents are. If they want to race, maybe the, the grandchild of the horse would win a race. But, uh, some people, uh, did, did very well for themselves by finding out using data and finding out that that's not true. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. So there's this guy, there's really one guy who did it as far as I can tell, which is Mm. this guy, Jeff Sater. Uh, and he had three degrees from Harvard University, a BA, an MBA, and a JD, all from Harvard. And uh, he was obsessed with horses. He was actually working at a bank in New York City, Citibank. He was 26 years old. He had a banking job. He goes home one day. He looks himself in the mirror. He's wearing, you know, kind of a banker's outfit, a suit and tie. Uh, so looks himself in the mirror and says, this isn't me. Uh, I'm not meant to be a banker. I'm not meant to wear a suit. I'm not meant to live in New York. So he moves to Pennsylvania, to rural Pennsylvania, he loved the woods and he loved being, wanted to uh, kind of be around horses. And he became obsessed with his project was to try to uh, better predict what makes a great racehorse and great. And he used data analysis. And uh, the, the thing that stood out about him is how entrepreneurial he was. So I think when we think of data scientists, so if you're a data scientist, I'm a data scientist. A lot of times we work with a lot of data scientists. I think a lot, a lot of people assume that a great data scientist just sits at their computer all day and just kind of has data given to them and knows the way to analyze it. And that definitely is a big part of data science. But I think uh, to kind of stand out from others, uh, 
a big advantage is being entrepreneurial like Jeff Sater was. And Sater was doing all these things to get new data that other people didn't have, uh, including he worked with uh, scientists at the University of Pennsylvania to build the world's first EKG to measure the internal organs of horses. And he found that the size of certain internal organs predicted whether they'd, they'd, be, they'd uh, be successful ra uh, racehorses, whether they'd run fast, including the size of their left ventricle. That was one of the biggest predictors. And I, yeah. I discussed how one of his great predictions, kind of claim to fame, was predicting that American Pharaoh would be an amazing horse, a once-in-a-generation horse, based in large part on the size of his left ventricle, uh, which was 99.6 first 61 percentile a left ventricle. Do you know, did, did he come up with this the hypothesis and a hunch or was it like, um, uh, was it something where he was just looking for patterns? Well, he, he, the, the thing about Jeff Sater is he comes up with hypotheses like 20 times a day. Ah. Uh, that, he's, uh, he's That's a, it's idea, a good skill. Yeah, he's an ideas machine. So uh, if you got to go through, this was the, the left ventricle insight came to him after 20 years of studying horses. And along the way, he had tried all kinds of other things that didn't work, which is also another important lesson in data science that a lot of times to get that big win, you have to fail a lot of times, uh, come up with a lot of hypotheses that don't work. And that's kind of just part of the uh, creative data science process. Yeah, failing a lot of times. I'm well on my way on <laughs> certain things. I want to uh, interrupt to tell you about Ryan, Raw Internet Object Notation. I'm very happy to have them sponsoring the show. Um, you might not think that you use data formats, but you do think JSON, XML, all that stuff. If you're a software engineer or a data scientist, uh, you might think that you're not in the market for data formats, but guess what? You are. How you store and transfer your data can make your life easier or it can, in some cases, make your life harder. It can be faster or slower. It can be more expensive or less expensive. So if you want to learn more about this uh, incredibly important topic in, you know, as a software engineer, you want to learn about data uh, formats and maybe make some improvements, I encourage you to check out Ryan, R-I-O-N, Raw Internet Object Notation. If you need to export, import, store, or exchange large amounts of data on a regular basis, then you can benefit from a compact, fast, and versatile data format. Ryan is a binary data format, which is both compact and fast to read and write. A data structure serialized to Ryan requires on average 20 to 50% fewer bytes than the same data structure serialized to JSON. The fewer bytes also translates into a 20 to 50% faster read and write speed. So you can learn more about Ryan at localmaxradio.com slash 123 to check out our sponsors there. Let's, uh, let's get into the search data. Your book title is named Everybody Lies. So I assume it's about some people who are being not so truthful. Are you saying people lie in their searches or are the searches exposing lies? No, so I think so. What I'm saying is that people lie. People are more honest on Google. They're more so honest they lie, on Google. Yeah, they lie in other ways. They lie to their family members. They lie to their friends. They lie to surveys, even though they're anonymous, the traditional way to understand what people are thinking and doing. But they tend to be much more honest with many, many online sources, particularly Google searches. I think that's the area where people really pour out their... Uh, so, their yeah, can you give me like an example of that? So, for example, if you ask people, are you going to vote in an election? Right. Uh, just about everybody says, yes, 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 of course, I'm going to vote. Are you going to vote in the next presidential election? You ask them in a survey, people say yes, because they don't want to admit they're not going to vote. It's considered shameful not to vote. Maybe they're lying to themselves. 
you can actually predict with great accuracy how high turnout's going to be in an area based on how frequently people are making Google searches in that area for vote, voting, how to vote, where to vote. Uh, that's much more predictive than, uh, than asking people. Another example I talked about is racism. I mean, obviously an issue that's at the top of the news right now. If you ask people, are you racist? Most people, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of people, 98, 99% of people would say, no, no, of course not, I'm not racist. Well, it turns out uh, there are millions of searches every year for explicitly racist material, um, mainly jokes mocking African-Americans. So things like N-word jokes, very, very common search. And I've, I've shown and other scientists have shown that this uh, measure of racism can predict a lot of negative outcomes for African-Americans, kind of the secret racism that, uh, you know, not a, not the majority of people, but still a number of people in the United States have uh, really can harm African-Americans in many dimensions. So you, you found that people often tell Google things that they wouldn't tell actual people. Um, uh, so, and that sometimes skews the data too. Sometimes it's more honest, but the one that sticks out of my mind is, you know, sadly, like searches of people who regret having children. Yeah, yeah. That is not uh, the normal thing. But, you know, if you're, if you're happy having children, you're not going to go into Google and saying, I'm so happy I have children. You're probably just going to go enjoy your children. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was just kind of putting that, it's it's interesting that if you actually look at beforehand, uh, people ask a lot of questions. Like people almost never ask Google, "Will I regret having children?" Hmm. But they ask Google frequently, "Will I regret not having children?" Yeah. So there's like so that so people which and but then if you look at what they report to Google after the fact, it's totally reversed. So people go to Google much more saying, "I regret having children" than like, "I regret not having children." And I think you're absolutely right that. I don't think we can go from just, you know, how many, how many people search, I regret having children versus I regret not having children, how many people regret those two things. There's this bias. Uh, and I think a lot of people that search, I regret having children. So I was just, uh, during, when COVID-19 hit, I escaped. Uh, I don't have children, but I escaped to my parents' country house with my sister and her husband who have two little kids. And I had not realized just how difficult having children is. Uh, nor had I realized just how much of the day two-year-olds cry. Uh, so I could imagine, I, I, don't, I, I don't think my sister did this, but I could imagine a parent of a two-year-old child who 95% of the time really is happy to have children, loves their children, uh, the children are the apple of their eye. You know, one morning, you didn't sleep at all, you wake up. You know, I've seen that there are a lot of these mornings with kids, you know, you didn't sleep at all, your, your boss is yelling at you, your job. Uh, you, you wake up early and your kid's crying or complaining about something or your kids are fighting. And then, you, you know, just in the heat of the moment, you're like, oh, I, made, I made a terrible mistake, uh, which isn't necessarily a representative feeling, uh, a representative sample of uh, all times how you feel about your decision to have kids. So I definitely do think it can be biased. Google searches on regretting children and just more generally can be biased in the direction of things that you don't want to tell other people. So you kind of pour out to Google. Right. So it's interesting. You have, uh, in one case, you have the, the voting case that you mentioned, who's going to vote, where there actually is ground truth there. You can yeah. actually see what the turnout is. So you can actually see what the, you know, whether the searches are more accurate than the surveys. Um, and, but in some cases, it's sort of harder to tell uh, what's going on with the searches. Yeah, exactly. So an ideal situation for Google searches, I've done a little bit of this with uh, 
COVID-19. So you can actually, it's very clear in the United States where data, where testing data of COVID-19 is pretty good, not, not perfect, but pretty good, uh, that Google searches for symptoms predict COVID-19 prevalence very accurately, particularly the strongest predictor by far is searches related to loss of smell. Okay, uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly one of the things that uh, people who have had it have told me that. Yeah, it's a very common symptom. I think some of the data says 30 to 40% of people who have COVID-19 lose their smell. And also, it's a symptom that you don't otherwise have. So people might have fever, diarrhea, or other possible symptoms, chills, other possible symptoms for other reasons. But loss of smell, I think, uh, is, is a rare symptom absent COVID-19 and a common symptom with COVID-19. Uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a strong predictor of uh, rates of the disease. And I think, so then you have like this ground truth in, in the United States of actual prevalence rates. And what you can do with that data is then use this measure to p- bring it to places in the world with worse data. So I just looked recently and Haiti and Africa are now leading the world in searches complaining of loss of smell, uh, even though the mm. test data would suggest that they, the prevalence rates for COVID-19 are pretty low there. Uh, and I think that's probably misleading. It's probably because of bad testing. So that's like, that's a really great case of Google searches. Because if you have the ground truth, yeah. to some degree, you don't need the Google searches. But if you have the ground truth in one place, then you can validate the metric and then bring it to a place where you don't have ground tr- the ground truth. Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating. And so it, it sounds... I'm, I think, you know, in the coming years, maybe even like many years from now, data scientists and, and others will be just pouring through this data and figure out what really happened with this pandemic. I don't, we certainly don't know the whole story uh, of what's going on around the world right now. Um, and that's sort of a, a clever trick to do, find symptoms that you wouldn't otherwise have, like uh, irritated throat in the morning. I can't tell you how many times over the last four months I've had an irritated throat in the morning. I'm like, oh, that's it. I got it. Like, <laughs> yeah, so one of them I also saw is, yeah, eye pain, which isn't really talked about as a symptom. This is exactly along the, along what you're talking about. Eye pain seems to be very correlated, at least in the United States, with prevalence rates of COVID-19, even though it hasn't been talked about as a symptom. So that's kind of, you could also use this data to try to discover uh, other symptoms of the disease, which are, you know, symptom pattern disease, which, which also aren't perfectly known. Hey, everyone. So one of the challenges that I have on the show is describing all of these rich, concepts and data science and machine learning uh, and and mathematics in like an audio format. Wouldn't you agree? It's difficult. So I just want to tell you about a new sponsor that I'm really excited about. I checked out some of their courses recently, and I think you should check it out too. It's called Brilliant. And it's not like other online courses. You're not going to have to sit through long videos or download PDFs. This is a highly visual and interactive way to learn concepts and math, probability, and science. I always say this, that the most important part of learning a new concept is to be able to get a good intuition for it, to understand what it means and what's going on. If you want to dive deeper and actively learn some of the concepts that I've introduced here on The Local Maximum, you want to go to brilliant.org slash local maximum to check it out. The first 200 will get 20% off. Remember, it's called Brilliant. You could take courses on their website at brilliant.org, but it's an app as well, so you can get it on your phone or tablet. But remember to sign up and go directly to brilliant.org slash local maximum to get the discount or find my link at localmaxradio.com slash 123. Another interesting insight you found was the one with the Freudian slips. I think that was kind of towards the beginning of the book, sort of interesting. People misspelled words. They make them sound, I don't know, 
dirty, sexual. Uh, and is that a coincidence? Yeah, so that was kind of a fun study. I actually got this data set. Microsoft uh, collected this data set of people, people's misspellings. And there are all these, there are a whole bunch of them that were really amusing. So my favorite, which I start this section with, is penistrian, that someone misspelled pedestrian as penistrian. Uh, and I think if, if, certainly if, if Freud had seen that, he would have said, you know, like, you're revealing your secret, you know, viewing all people as just penises, you know, with, with bodies attached to them and minds attached to that. And, you know, would have made a huge deal of this misspelling. So I kind of built this bot, I call it error bot, where I just made errors at kind of the same, mis, mixed around letters at the same way people do. Uh, and just saw how frequently they made basically mistakes of a sexual dimension. And my error bot just, just even though it had no subconscious, it was totally random, was also making these like very humorous, uh, seemingly Freudian slips in, 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 in somewhat high frequency. So I, my favorite is that they, they miss error bot without its subconscious misspelled lipstick as lips dick. Uh, it, it switched the T in lipstick with the D, uh, which is, I think if anyone saw that, certainly if Freud or a psychoanalyst saw that, they'd say, oh my God, you know, you're, you, you think everything is related to oral sex or something. And, and, and it turns out that Errorbot and humans made a set of, uh, slips of a sexual nature at the exact same frequency. So that kind of, to me, suggested that uh, Freud was in error, was, er was wrong to suggest that we use our subconscious to kind of uh, we use our subconscious in our in the errors we make in the ways we you know um, uh, misspeak to reveal secret thoughts that we wouldn't otherwise say. I, I don't think there's any evidence for that in the data based on what I saw. All right, so that's that's good news, folks. For anyone listening, like if you uh, if you kind of make a, 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 a little error in your typing and it's embarrassing, you could just Look at Errorbot. You can say, oh, no, 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 no. It was a mistake. It was okay. Uh, <laughs> a a penistrian is just a penistrian. All right. So, um, in well, we've started to talk about this. My next question is, is kind of gets to the crux of it. Like, how much can these Google searches really tell us? Is there a limit to what we could know about people given what they're searching for? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a limit. You know, I, I like to think that I think if someone saw my Google search history, they'd be pretty horrified. I know. And I, I, yeah. I, leg I legitimately think that that is due to the fact that I wrote a book on Google searches. And in part of writing this book, I had to type a lot of things to kind of understand, you know, so if I was writing a paper, writing a section about people searching N-word jokes, I wanted to search N-word jokes to see what came up to get a better sense of, of what, uh, what these people were thinking. And, you know, same with, in, in writing the book, I definitely typed, I want to kill my girlfriend because I had a search. I had a section on people who typed that. And again, you, you want to see like what comes up to see, is there some movie related to this that is driving the, the results? Uh, but I think a, a lot of people search things like they're just curious to see what comes up. Yeah, I, I think they're definitely, I think, I think curiosity plays a role. I think it's, it's not maybe as big a role as some people think, you know, that, that even though some searches are just due to curiosity, uh, still, there is great signal in these searches, and most searches are not due to just pure curiosity or pure research purposes. But there definitely is some is is some of that 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 can limit uh, how much you can tell about one individual just based on their searches. 
Interesting. Okay, so I it's it's I've been trying to make public for years a data set we have at Foursquare, which is all of the terms people use, you know, when they're when they're checking into a place, when they're, you know, when they're at a place and telling their friends about what they're what they're doing. There's interesting stuff in that data set, but it's mostly just like it's it's a, a lot of obvious stuff, like people who talk about dinner tend to talk about dinner around dinner time and things like that. But there are interesting differences between cities and languages that I hope to make public one time. Maybe I'll I'll point to this conversation and tell tell the uh, tell the Foursquare management like, hey, somebody could do something interesting with this data one day. Um, so anyway, this is kind of giving me sort of the kick of the butt to to do that. <laughs> so all right, the book is called Everybody Lies: Big Data, New Data, and uh, What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Seth. So uh, where can people go to uh, buy the book and learn more? Oh, my website, sethsd.com. Perfect. Yeah. Or All people right. Google Seth Everybody Lies because nobody remembers my last name, but if you Google Seth Everybody Lies, it, you can find find me. So Perfect. And this will all be on my show notes page. This is going to be localmaxradio.com slash 123. Seth, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Max. All right. It's great to be back with more guests for you. Uh, Hopefully next week I'll talk to Aaron and uh, I have a few more up my sleeve. So have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.